Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text hope NY in New York. We are a little bit past the halfway point when it comes to the college football season. It hurts, breaks my heart a little bit, probably breaks your heart a little bit too. That's okay. Glass is still half full from where we're sitting. Welcome into the hard count. We have a enormous prediction Tuesday lined up for you. We've got a ton of big games set up for this week seven slate. A ton. Anybody that told you this is a sleepy slate coming up this weekend, they lied to you. They're not your real friends. All right, welcome into the hard count. Like I said, college football, only college football every single day of the year. Today is Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. So we're going to make it a phenomenal one as it is the last Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. In history, got a lot of big games. Like I already told you, we got Florida going to South Carolina. We got Texas A&M going to Neyland Stadium to play Tennessee. You got the Cascade Clash, Oregon and Washington. Not just conference implications there, but playoff implications between the Ducks and Huskies. Also, USC and Notre Dame playing for the Shillelagh. We'll talk about that. We'll give you our picks on that one. Before we get to that, though, Mark Stoops had some things to say about Georgia and some things to say about the current state of NIL at Kentucky. So we'll, uh, we'll give you our thoughts there. But if you're new to this show, we're glad to have you here. And we try and preface every single show by, by saying this. You have a lot going on. This life is crazy. There's a lot of other things begging for your attention. School, work, your boss, emails blowing up, text messages, whatever it is. You got a lot on your plate. We're telling you, hey, just take a beat. Enjoy what we got right now. Enjoy the fact we got college football season right now. You only get so many college football Saturdays. You only get so many Prediction Tuesdays. So we're going to sort of enjoy this, take this in. You enjoy this. You've earned it. And whenever this show is over, we'll look back up at whatever we got on the, on the, the to-do list. But right now, it's ball 
and only ball. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're following on the social channels as well, at JD Pakel. I'll say this too. We've, uh, we've been hot. We've been hot when it comes to our picks on the gambling side of things. You say, JD, you don't really talk about gambling on the show too much. We don't because I don't think the majority of the audience really cares about that too much. But if you do care about gambling, if you do care about making a little bit of money on some lines during the college football season, we've got some best bets we give out every single Friday on my Instagram page, at JD Pakel. Haven't had a losing week since, I think it was maybe week two. Even that, maybe I'm wrong. We've been hot, all right? We went 3-2 and two last week, 4-1 and one the two weeks before that. So if you want to get in on that, follow me on Instagram, at JD Pacal. Again, those things are exclusively on that platform. All right, let's jump into it. Mark Stoops, last night, if you were scanning the Twitterverse around, oh, I guess it was 9.30 p.m., 10 p.m. or so, Central Time, so even later if you're on Eastern, Eastern Time, uh, had some things to say on a radio show. And... Essentially, what was said, I'm paraphrasing here, is Mark Stoops said, if people are upset or people are discouraged or, or fans have issues with how we played against Georgia, that's their right. They're, they're more with, you know, they're very much so in bounds to, to be upset with us for how we played. But I would also tell them that they should pony up and, and, and give more. They need to put more into the program so we can get the caliber of players that Georgia has. And the verbiage he used, I think, was the things that kind of set people off. He said, Georgia bought a lot of really good players. And he kind of said it tongue in cheek, but he meant what he said from where I was standing. And he also said, I would encourage people to pony up. He's like, it's within the rules now. That's what has to happen. So what do we make of all this? Part of it landed a little bit weird, and we'll unpack why that is in just a second. But like, a lot of people are mad at Mark Stoops today for saying that. Like, I don't have an issue with the content of what he said. It's NIL. It's a reality. It's, a, it's now a part of the rules that you can operate within. Like, yes, Georgia, I would imagine. I don't know this to be true, so I'm kind of assuming here that Georgia has a more competitive NIL structure than Kentucky. Based on what Mark Stoops is saying, that's what he's implying. Georgia is being able to compete more in that space than Kentucky is. So if, if I'm a top recruit, I don't think NIL is the only thing, but I think it definitely has to be a factor when it comes to picking where I want to go to college. Just kind of the reality of what we're doing now in college sports. So what he's saying isn't incorrect, but the context and the way that he said it is what set people off. Because we forget now, Nick Saban said this exact same thing, but he said it in a closed forum. He said it in, I believe it was, uh, might have been a meeting with, potential boosters or it was it was an in-house meeting essentially he didn't know he was on the air mark stoops i believe said this on like a radio broadcast like there's video circulating all over the internet today of mark stoops on the mic with a radio host saying this today so it, it wasn't something where he was you know just kind of saying it behind closed doors to people that actually are going to give he just broadcast it to everybody and also he said it after they got throttled by georgia nick saban said it in the off season so the way that marks the timing of this for Mark Stoops and for Kentucky, it looks a little bit sore loserish. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying that's how it looks and that's how it feels. Like if you want to ask for money in the offseason and kind of rally the boosters behind closed doors or say, hey, you want us to win some national titles or bring home some SEC titles? Let's get our NIL structure in place. That's fine. But to do it during the season after you just got drubbed by Georgia, it ain't a good look. It ain't a good look. And I would also make sure we say this, kids that commit to Georgia, they commit to Georgia, probably a factor 
in every kid's recruitment is NIL, like we talked about. But kids commit to Georgia for the most part, not because NIL is just creme de la creme. I think they commit to Georgia, if I had to guess, because of the way they get developed, the way that they have a chance to get drafted, and because of what Georgia does on the football field. And if you want to have NIL resources given to your program, you know what you got to get? Hardware. And this is not a dunk on Kentucky kind of segment right now. Kentucky has done a ton. Mark Stoops, I think, is quietly one of the best coaches in college football. He deserves a ton of credit for what he's done. But to say that we need more resources, well, if I'm a booster at Kentucky, I'm saying, okay, well, I need more results. I'm not going to give to a team that's, that's not competing year in and year out for SEC titles. Now, Kentucky's been in that conversation, but it's a lot easier to give when you have some hardware. We all understand that. So I'm not saying what Mark Stoops is broadcasting is incorrect or unfair, but the context, the timing of it, like if I'm a player in that locker room even, let's take it a step further. If I'm a player in that locker room and I hear my coach saying, well, we need better players, I'm like, screw this, dude. You think you think you need to get better NIL so you can have better players? I'm not good enough for you? Like that, that's something that I think would be difficult, and I would not be surprised if we had a follow-up conversation or a follow-up message from coach stoops kind of clarifying what he said I'm not saying it's 100 the case but that's kind of the way that it felt to me so timing context it's everything the content i don't have an issue with the timing is what i have an issue with and again if you're able to develop guys at the level that georgia is and put guys into the nfl at the level that georgia is and you're able to win at the level that georgia is i would have to imagine there's more money coming your way just my own feel on things that's why you got to love college football, man. We're in week seven of the season, and we're talking about NIL and what coaches are saying during radio broadcasts. Like, only college football. Only college football does that happen. Appreciate y'all being dialed in. If you could like the video, we'll keep this good thing rolling, and we will have ourselves a tremendous prediction Tuesday and be over 100 likes before we get off the air. Let's jump right into it. Prediction time. Or, excuse me, I jumped the gun there. Before we do that, we got to go to prize picks. Got to get it in in the first 15 minutes. Got to keep the lights on, y'all. Has to happen. All right, to recap it for you for prize picks, Daily Fantasy, I hadn't played until this season. And playing this season, it's been a blast. This past weekend, we had a three-square play going, a little power play action. Jason McClellan, we needed him to run for a touchdown. That did not happen. A&M's defense, really, really good. Caleb Williams, we said he would throw for less than three and a half touchdowns, uh, and that did happen. Arizona did a great job limiting possessions. And we're going to predict that USC-Notre Dame game a little bit later in the show, but probably caused you to feel uh, just a little bit nervous because if you're USC, you saw what could happen if the offense doesn't hit the ground running the way we've come to expect them to. So anyway, that square did hit for us. Xavier Worthy, I mean, just like a half yard short of a touchdown. We had him for a rushing or receiving touchdown on the day. His number was more than a half receiving touchdown or a rushing touchdown. We had that. It did not hit. Nonetheless, we circle the wagons. We don't hang our head. We don't pout. We just move forward. And on Thursday, we will have some winners for you on the prize pick side of things. So redeem code JD, 100% deposit match, up to $100 when you redeem that code JD with prize picks. A lot of fun. Want y'all dialed in. And uh, like I said, we give out picks every single week on this show when it comes to prize picks. We appreciate them being a part of the program. All right. Now, excuse my false start, 
This show is called the Hard Count for a reason. We gave you a little hard count fake there, but now we're jumping into it. Prediction Tuesday, we got Florida at South Carolina. South Carolina favored by two and a half, 3.30 Eastern SEC Network. This game has massive implications for both teams in my mind. Like for Florida, it's gut check time. If you win this game, you get to five wins before heading into your bye week, before playing Georgia. The, the, the over-under win total on Florida going into the season was five and a half. How sweet would that be for Billy Napier and company to be at five before they even play Georgia? I think this is a situation where for Florida, this is kind of a, a figure out who you're going to be this season kind of game. Because last year, Florida was dominant in this game. Last year, Florida took over and we were all feeling pretty good about where things stood for them headed into the rest of the season. And we we're all feeling pretty good about the Billy Napier experience. And then things sort of went how they went to end the year. But in, in this game, if you beat South Carolina, again, I think it's very much so a identity forming kind of game because you had the, the tough showing against Kentucky, got back on the right side of things against Vanderbilt. This is that kind of game where you decide what you want to be, who you're going to be against a team that I think has a lot of weapons and a lot of potential to hurt you in South Carolina. Now for South Carolina, I think it's kind of the other side of the coin and the same kind of the vibe. They had a bye last week. We saw them play in Neyland Stadium against Tennessee and kind of get pushed around a little bit. They're two and three right now, but guess what? Check the calendar. Check the weather outside, feeling a little bit more crisp. You're seeing jack-o'-lanterns outside, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's Cocktober. That's what it is right now. So uh, in the same way, who are you going to be? You're at two and three right now. You've just had your bye week. You're playing a, a team that beat you pretty handily last year. This is a part of the evolution, I think, of Shane Beamer's South Carolina. How do you respond? What are you going to be now after you got knocked down? You've had a week to think about it. I'm excited to see because I think both teams will bring their A game. First matchup we've got to watch in this game, man. Mario Anderson and Dow Loggins running back for South Carolina and the offensive coordinator for South Carolina against the front seven of Florida. Florida really had issues against Kentucky stopping the run. The physicality of Kentucky was just downhill, downhill, downhill. But outside of that game, Florida's actually been pretty solid stopping the run. Now, the big thing within that is South Carolina has had issues during the season and really since Spencer Rattler's been the quarterback creating balance and some of that's injuries in the running back room some of that's a lot of people in Columbia would tell you who was calling the offense but at this point in time Mario Anderson has become a nice surprise for them the way that he has carried the mail and a lot of this whole matchup goes back to what you ask Spencer Rattler to do. Is it a game where you ask Spencer Rattler to throw on the red cape and say, hey, you got to be the guy that wins the game for us today? Or is it a thing where you can kind of keep that Florida defense off balance and live in second and six, third and three? Because if it is the latter, I think Spencer Rattler will have a chance to really cook. Like Spencer Rattler, for a lot of people, they can't get the snapshot out of their mind of him being benched at Oklahoma, and that's just who they will always be to him. Some people that actually watch college football now know that Spencer Rattler, when he has the right pieces around him, when he's got some help offensively, he's a really good quarterback. He's actually a version of what a lot of people thought he would be when he came out of high school. So I think that's probably more of the true reality when it comes to Spencer Rattler. Can they help him out? Because if they can't, it'll be a version of what we just said previously. If you put it all on Spencer Rattler, this Florida defense will be able to attack how they want to attack. I mean, we've seen with Austin Armstrong, they want to run, they want to hit, they want to be confusing, they want to put pressure on a quarterback. And if they can pin their ears back and not worry about that run game and not feel like that's a threat to them, 
you get to one, get after Spencer Rattler, and two, you get to have more attention on Xavier Leggett, who will hurt you if you don't give him the proper amount of attention. So I think they'd like to live that way. Going to be a very big matchup in this game. Now, another matchup we got to watch. The Florida passing game against this South Carolina secondary. Now, Graham Mertz transferring from Wisconsin. I think he's been a lot better than what people thought he would be when he decided to transfer to Gainesville. And South Carolina, man, they have had their issues in the secondary. It is no secret. Like, they made Will Rogers look pretty good. Will Rogers put up some road-to-glory numbers when they played him. And I think for Florida, the expectation is, if you're a South Carolina fan, that they're going to try and pound the rock and, and try and control the tempo of the game. And I think that's true. But I think also when you look at this game, I wouldn't be surprised if Florida tested that secondary a little bit, tried to loosen up that box a little bit, tried to make those linebackers have a little bit of a slower trigger when it comes to playing the run. And I think Graham Mertz has the arm to be able to hurt you. So for South Carolina, are you able to be solid enough on the back end? Heck, on the other side of things, are you able to get to the quarterback at all to kind of minimize that passing attack? And then on the other side of things for Florida, if you can hit those deep shots downfield, then are you able to keep that rolling and, and able to keep the, the South Carolina defense off balance with going back to the run game? Because I think that's the plan for, for Florida. Be able to hit some shots in the pass game, but the big part of this, the, everything that is, is, is predicated on Florida's success offensively is running the football. So something to watch for within this matchup, Eugene Wilson is a stud freshman for Florida. And I think he's a guy that is probably a little bit more lesser known when it comes to Florida's offense, just because he got dinged up against Tennessee and you didn't really see him much after that. But early in that Tennessee game, it was feed Eugene Wilson. He got in the end zone last week against Vanderbilt. And when he's in space, he's just a problem to deal with. And I think what he's going to do horizontally, just in terms of putting pressure on the perimeter of the South Carolina defense, could make for one some open shots in the pass game because your eyes kind of get a little bit mixed up when you got motions and you got bubble screens and you got all these things going side to side if you're the South Carolina defense and you could lose track of Ricky Pearsall maybe he sneaks behind the safety or it just gets the defense flowing and then we got Eugene Wilson going to the left and oh wouldn't you know it it's power run back to the right and we got a big play happening so if that's the case for Florida good things are going to happen for them offensively and, I mean, one of the main things I'm watching in this game, what's the score at half? Because we've seen for Florida, if they get behind around two scores, it is very difficult for them to climb back into it. That's not the way this offense is built. It's not built to try and chase you. It's built to control the tempo and to force you into submission. Now, for South Carolina, to be clear, they have the offense. That could put pressure on you quick, fast, and in a hurry. Xavier Leggett, I've already talked about him. I believe he was leading the country in receiving coming into that game against Tennessee. We saw him up close and personal. He is a specimen. All right, Spencer Rattler. If he gets hot, if he gets rolling, it's going to be a long day at the office. Like that's the kind of potential this pass game has. And I think Dow Loggins will have to, going back to that second matchup we talked about, or that first matchup we talked about even, can they do some things to get him comfortable? Whether it's quick game, whether it's, having some sort of rushing attack, whether it's getting them on the move, like there's got to be something to get Spencer Rattler rolling. So if they can put pressure on Florida to score points, could be a very long day at the office for Florida. So when it comes to this game, man, I think South Carolina, the concern for me, I, I really get concerned about their rush defense. Like right now, they're allowing over four yards a carry, over 150 yards rushing a game, and that's where Florida wants to live. That's where Florida has lived. And so I think 
the ability for Florida to run the football. And then on the flip side of things, what we saw South Carolina not be able to do against Tennessee, the way that Tennessee kind of pushed them around and the way that they really made South Carolina pretty one-dimensional in terms of what they did stopping the run and putting the game on Spencer Rattler. I think they put a blueprint out there for the rest of the country. So I think this one could get interesting with it being in Columbia, with it being at Willie B. But I think that Florida does enough physically up front, and Graham Mertz makes enough throws. Again, keep an eye on Eugene Wilson. I think he could have a big day and be a big factor in this game. Florida wins this football game 27-21. to At that point in time, again, Florida, you get to five wins. Morale is starting to boost. There's a lot more support coming up for Billy Napier. Five wins before heading into the bye week, before playing Georgia. And uh, that five-and-a-half number, you start to feel pretty decent about, would have to imagine. So that'll be a lot of fun to watch. And uh, we'll make sure we're dialed in for that one. Big 330 slate. A lot of big 330 games for those of y'all that are uh, trying to plan your Saturday for this upcoming weekend. If you could like the video and put us over 100 likes. If everybody liked the video right now, we'd be well over 100 likes, and we would appreciate y'all tremendously for that. Got a nice little streak going. We're, we're pressing towards 30 shows in a row with 100 likes before we get off the air. So the ball is in your court. We appreciate you in advance for getting it done. Have enormous faith in the program. All right. Another game at 3.30. So you probably have the dual screen going right now. You probably got Florida at South Carolina on one screen. On the other screen, maybe you're going YouTube TV, little dual screen, Texas A&M at Tennessee. Tennessee favored by three and a half points at the crib. 3.30 Eastern on CBS for Texas A&M now. Could get loud quick. Could get very loud very quick. I don't just mean about Neyland Stadium being deafening. That's a very, very real possibility. We got to be in there for the blackout game, and it was crazy. But if they lose two in a row, have the loss to Bama, have the loss to Tennessee, that good faith that was sort of built back up from the last couple of games before Alabama starts to, starts to dwindle. We know it's a very flammable situation in College Station. It kind of is what it is. And I'm not saying Jimbo Fisher gets fired. I'm not saying that the, the seat gets hot or whatever. I'm just saying like that the conversation around his job becomes increasingly uncomfortable. Now for Tennessee, this is another building block for them of what we call the new Tennessee. Because Tennessee last year, it was Hen and Hooker dealing and, and throwing the ball all around the yard to Jalen Hyatt, and they were explosive play city. Like They still have that, I think, in the back pocket. I think they're still trying to hone that. But what we saw against South Carolina for Tennessee – it's an edgy Tennessee team, man. It's a Tennessee team that wants to push you around. They want to run the football. They want to work some quick game and, and keep you honest. But like as a whole, man, like they, they want to be the bully. They take pride in being the bully. We got to be down there on the sideline and watch Tennessee bully South Carolina up and down the field. It was an edge for that football team. So with this new Tennessee, I think they're trying to still provide some, some proof of concept. And I think there's a lot of confidence in-house. I think that's still who they are. But I think some of it, too, is proving it to yourself week in and week out. And a and is going to have a really good front seven, which we'll talk about here in a second. But like, if you can play that edgy style of football against Texas A&M and be successful with it and win a football game with it, like, what can't you do the rest of the way? I think that's got to be the thought process for Tennessee coming out of this game and, heck, even going into this game. Now, a big matchup for us, Joe Milton. Quarterback for Tennessee against this pass rush of Texas A&M. Uh, the pass rush that we're talking about for A&M, best in the country. Best in the country. Have a sack rate of, wait for it, 
15%. That means 15% of the snaps that Texas A&M is playing defensively, they're getting to the quarterback. Not just providing pressure, not just knocking him down, like they are sacking the quarterback 15% of the time. Had seven sacks against Arkansas, had six sacks against Alabama. So yeah, they got some guys that can get after you a little bit. Now for Joe Milton, the task in this game, the mission is this game, diagnose like a doctor, deliver like a midwife. That's what it's got to be for Joe Milton. We got to see the pressure before it even happens. We got to see the alignment. We got to feel the pressure. And then we got to find the open spot right away. We got to find our safety valve. We got to find the deep shot if it's there. Because I think there will be some deep plays to be had. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute as well. But Texas A&M, at best, if they get to Joe Milton, could create some, some tough third downs. Like just as a head coach, you don't have a ton of plays in the playbook for third and seventeen. You got a couple, but you only have so many. You don't want to live in third and long. On the other side of things, at at worst, it could create some negative decisions by Joe Milton. Could cause him to put the ball in harm's way. We could see some turnovers. Like If they're able to pressure Joe Milton and he's not able to see and, and process the defense and make the right decision consistently, heck, execute the right decision consistently, I mean, put that out there, that would be... That'd be a situation you'd like to live in if you're Texas A&M. Now, for Joe Milton, going back to what we said, if he's able to process the defense quickly, if he's able to feel it right away, and going back to that key word, execute, I think this receiving core of Tennessee has to have an advantage over this of this A&M secondary. Like, we saw what happened last week, right, with Alabama. We saw, we saw what they were able to get done. Isaiah Bond had a big day. Jermaine Burton had a big day. Like two receivers that you probably knew about for Alabama, but you never really thought they were going to be like game breakers for Bama. Well, that's what they were last week. So it's going to be crucial for them to separate and to be able to provide some explosives in that way. Now it falls back on Joe Milton on executing, and I think the intermediate pass game too will have to be a part of this. Like we can't see Joe Milton we saw in the Swamp and Gainesville. We can't see Florida Joe Milton where he's missing on the 10-yard pass and the 15-yard pass. Like we got to be dialed in all the way down the field. But especially on those deep passes, we got to be able to hit when money's on the table because I think money will be on the table a fair amount for Tennessee. Now Tim Banks, defensive coordinator for Tennessee. And dealing with the multiple playmakers that Texas A&M has, Evan Stewart, Moose Muhammad, Anaya Smith, like you just go down the list here. There's no shortage of ballers for AM that can hurt you when the ball's in their hands. How do you go about dealing with that? Because the issue with AM having so many weapons is it's tough to give the proper amount of attention to each of them. And when you're not able to effectively distribute resources across the board to guard this number of playmakers, it's a matter of time before one of them hurts you. And so I think if a and able to do that, well, then you put pressure on the Tennessee offense to match scores. And I think that there's this firepower from Texas A&M we haven't seen just yet. And if you want to even dial it back and say, okay, maybe they don't have to match scores, at the very least, you keep Tennessee guessing offensive or defensively, rather, with what Texas A&M does offensively. Could be a long day for the Vols. You don't want to be wondering where that next punch is coming from if you're Tennessee. Now, here's the thing I would do if I'm Tennessee. And this is way easier said than done from this chair sitting behind a microphone than it is being on the grass and having to coach it up. But philosophically, my thought process would have to be, how do we isolate the problems? And what I mean by that is, you can't allow it to be a thing where you just do a bunch of things good and not 
a number of things great or not one thing great. Like if your attention is divided across the board, I think you have issues defensively if you're Tennessee. Like if I'm Tennessee, it's about attacking. Like they have a top 10 sack rate in their own right, does Tennessee, right around 11%. Let's get after Max Johnson. Let's make him uncomfortable. Alabama was really successful last week defensively when they started to force the issue against Max Johnson and and speed up that shot clock. I think there's going to be some play to be made for Tennessee defensively as well. Like, let's not just sit back and let him sort of play seven on seven and pick us apart and allow there for time for for, for Evan Stewart to get open and Aya Smith to get open and Jake Johnson to get open. Like, the more you can speed up the shot clock and force him to put the ball in harm's way and force him to make throws before he's ready to make a throw, that's going to favor Tennessee. And when I say isolate the issue, that's one way to do it, to speed up the shot clock on the quarterback. But also, like, if we got to give it extra attention to Evan Stewart, so be it. Like, if, if that's the issue and that's the matchup we feel least confident in, let's take away Evan Stewart. Hey, if Moose Muhammad beats us, so be it. I think they need to pick and choose which matchups they want to be really great at and other matchups they say, hey, we got to live one-on-one here. Maybe not consistently, but down-to-down, we got to live one-on-one here. I'm curious to see how they address that, but it'll be, uh, it'll be telling, to say the least. Now, I think what, one of the biggest things in this game is can anyone run the football in this game? Can anyone move the line of scrimmage? Because we talk so much about what both teams can do in the pass game and the weapons they have. And I mean, Jimbo Fisher already talked about Squirrel White for Tennessee and compared him to a legitimate squirrel, which I think is hilarious. And I, I don't think he's incorrect in that assessment with how versatile and agile Squirrel White is. But if either team's able to run the football, it would do a couple of things. One, it would probably surprise all of us because AM is allowing 2.6 yards of carry. Tennessee's allowing 3.3 yards of carry, so both pretty solid. It would mellow out the defense. It would mellow out the ability for either team to bring pressure because when you want to bring pressure against a run, you better get home on that. You better make sure that you're making that tackle or, or that you're rushing the correct lane because if you don't, there's nobody behind you. You can't swing and miss. That running back's out the back door for however many yards. Probably a lot is the, is the assumption there. So mellow the defense. Also, it would unlock the rest of the offense. Going back to what we said about AM being able to get Tennessee off balance. If either team's able to run the football effectively, that would put either defense off balance. Keep them in guessing mode. Be, be able to live ahead of the sticks. Live in second and five. Live in third and two. That would be, I promise you, the situation both offenses would like to live in. Finally, helps out the quarterback. Joe Milton, tons of tools. We expect big things from him, but we haven't really seen it just yet. Max Johnson, I think he's one of the best backup quarterbacks in the country, but still he's been a backup quarterback until this point where he was thrust into action with Connor Wegman going down with an injury. So any way you're able to just take something off your quarterback's plate, that would be the way that you would like to live if you're either side. So just full transparency here, y'all, I don't feel good about this pick. Don't feel good about this pick. Was working on it for the majority of, of yesterday in terms of thinking it through and then putting pen to paper this morning. Like, don't feel great about this pick. Could see this game going either way. Here's my concern. With Tennessee, I cannot flush the memory of what I saw Florida do to them up front. Like, I just, I, I can't. I, I have issues with how I saw them respond to what Florida did in the front seven. I have issues with how I saw them tackle against Florida. Like the physicality that Florida brought and Tennessee didn't 
gives me concern. Now we saw South Carolina in that game, and we saw them play much more physical, but I just I have the sneaking suspicion that the AM front seven is going to bring it and provide pressure on Joe Milton. And as well as Joe Milton has played to this point in the year, there's still been, I think, a little bit more to be desired. I haven't seen that consistency from him. Now, he could very well step out there and drop dimes, like we saw Jalen Milrow do last week. And he could have a career day, and that wouldn't shock me. But it would be a little bit more new than what we've seen from him this season. I think the playmakers of AM are dangerous in space. I think they have a little bit more under the hood than what they're being given credit for. I'm sure Nealon will be rocking. How they handle that will be a very, very big factor. But at the end of the day, this is, this is a game one up front. And I think A&M defensively has more up front in this game. And they're going to force Joe Milton to be consistent and execute consistently in the intermediate pass game, in the deep pass game. There's going to be big plays to be had. But for me, I like A&M to win this football game 31-27. to Could be back and forth. Could be a matter of who gets the ball last. Could be last second. I don't know. Again, I don't feel good about it. Do not feel good about picking this one. But I think A&M wins this football game and walks out victorious on Saturday. So we got a lot of y'all that are Tennessee fans that follow the show. Hey, we love y'all. We love y'all. It's just the way we see it going. So we're going to find out on Saturday. That's the beautiful part about this. The whole deal is they actually play the games. Now, let's, uh, let's move out here to the West Coast in just a second. If you could uh, like the video, we would appreciate that enormously as we are well over 100. So that is a huge testament to y'all. So thank you for that. In just a few minutes, going to go to the Keeper of the Q, Nick, break and get to y'all's questions. So get in the live chat right now, get those to Nick, and we'll answer those as effectively and efficiently as possible. So let's get those in right now, and we'll have ourselves a real good time. Speaking of a real good time, man, this is probably the game of the year in the Pac-12, at least to this point, maybe for the entirety of the season. We'll see. But Oregon is going to Washington. College game day is going to be there. Washington favored by two and a half points, 3.30 Eastern on ABC. This game's got a couple of names to it. My favorite being the Cascade Clash. Nice little alliteration there. You also got the Border War. That's a good one, too. Bottom line, these teams don't like each other. It's a rivalry game. It's why we love college football. It's the passion on both the positive and negative side of things. A lot to play for right here. Both pole position in the Pac-12 Conference, kind of establishing themselves as the big dog, no pun intended for Washington, or the big duck if you're Oregon. And quite frankly, it is pole position when it comes to the college football playoff race. I think either one of these teams, depending on how it looks, a win would send a tremendous message to the rest of the college football landscape about what the Pac-12 is going to bring when it comes to that conversation. USC's in the mix, too. We'll predict their game here in just a minute. But bottom line, a lot to play for. We're about to make our pick. Before we do, though, make sure you're subscribed right here to the On3 YouTube channel. College football, only college football. If you're listening on podcast, we love and we appreciate you. Apple and Spotify is where you can get it. If you're watching live, you're one of us. You're a part of the program. We're live Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 11 a.m. Eastern. There's a chance, though, that you're watching this prediction from a one-off video that you found on YouTube. Probably anywhere from like 8 to 14 minutes, depending on how long this prediction goes. Make sure you're subscribed so you can be dialed in for the live portions of this show. Full hour long, we get in the live chat, we have a good time. We just talk ball, man. You love ball, we love ball. We don't do all that extra high fructose corn syrup or additives or agendas, whatever. Like It's ball and only ball. We'd love to have you a part of this. Best way to be a part of this is making sure you're subscribed and tuning into the live show. So we appreciate y'all in advance for that. Let's get to this game now, man. For Oregon, like I, th I think Oregon feels a little bit disrespected 
I think they got a little bit of an edge to them. And it's not so much because people are, are favoring Washington in this football game by two and a half points. I think it's just the way that we talk about the Pac-12 conference as a whole. I think people are enamored with Washington, and rightly so. Michael Penix Jr. been doing numbers like Goodwill Hunting, dealing the pill like a shady pharmacist. Every single phrase you want to throw at it. Dude has been balling. The Washington offense has got more weapons of the military. Like, they have been putting up numbers. I mean, I think they were leading the country in terms of total yards. They were top two in the country in terms of points scored a game. They might be leading in both those categories. Bottom line, they're electric. But there's Oregon just kind of chugging along, throttling Colorado and talking about how they're in it for wins and not for clicks. And we were big stands of that on this show, if you follow us for any length of time. They feel a little bit disrespected, is my humble opinion. This is a game with the rivalry edge where they've been waiting to run this one back from last year. Because last year, Oregon, I think a lot of people in Eugene would tell you they had this game won. Bo Nix goes down, things turn out how they turn out, and they end up not even getting a chance to kick a field goal to try and to tie the game. They just end up losing the football game. And it ended on like a Hail Mary, and Bo Nix wasn't healthy, like, Overall, just textbook bad deal for Oregon. They're looking for revenge in this game, looking to make a statement to the rest of the college football world that you got to talk about Oregon when it talks when, or when it comes to the West Coast and, and talking about the Pac-12 having a shot at the college football playoff. Now, like I just said with Washington, though, on the other side of things, the time for them is now. The time is now. If you're going to make a college football playoff push, this is the time to do it. Michael Penix. He's here for a good time and not a long time. He's been there for a long time, rather, in college football by way of Indiana. But this is, this is it for him. This is the last rodeo for number nine. And you got all these weapons for him, like we already talked about. Roma Dunze, Polk, McMillan. Like they got dogs, no pun intended. They got dogs. Can they capitalize on it this season? Can this be the year where you make good on all that talent on your roster? It starts in a game like this. This is the game where I think both teams kind of remove all the talking about either side, all the talking about Oregon could be in that college football playoff conversation. Washington could be in that college football playoff conversation. The knock on both teams has been, well, who have they played? Yeah, Oregon played Colorado, but we've kind of started to see more and more what Colorado doesn't have under the hood. Who have they played? Well, you beat either team. Talk about a quality win for the resume. I think it would be exactly that. Big matchup in this game. Probably the biggest matchup of this game, if we're being real. The Oregon secondary against the Washington Monstars at wide receiver. In this game a season ago, Oregon had their issues in the secondary. Michael Penix went for over four bills. 400 yards passing. That is ridiculous. Washington is a team that wants to get into rhythm. They want to work some of that quick game, work the perimeter a little bit, and then they want to launch missiles by way of Michael Penix and his throwing arm. The thing for Oregon is, can you just keep a lid on that deep pass game? That's like the big battle going on between that. The, the factors within Oregon being able to play the pass game effectively against Washington is, can Oregon uh, sort out the scheme of Washington? Because they do a lot with pre-snap movement. They do a lot with the layering and putting pressure on safeties and forcing them to pick a, a deep route to cover and then throwing to whoever they don't cover. Like They do a tremendous job scheming it up. Is Oregon able to be able to sort that out is Oregon able to be on their P's and Q's and not have this big reset moment right before the, the snap and have this issue where they're sorting things out mid play on the back end and then well I thought you had him I thought you had him before you know it they've scored six points and we got to have a conversation on the sideline can we avoid that kind of scenario 
the other part of this for Oregon, can the linebackers be serviceable in the pass game? And if you watch last year's tape, it's a different group for Oregon in that, in that second level of the defense. But Michael Penix Jr. just, I mean, just did whatever he wanted in the, in the intermediate pass game. Like, there was, there was more windows than a New York skyscraper for him to throw to. Like, it, it, was, it was unbelievable the way that they would stretch out that linebacker, force him to cover the flats, or make him move with the motion, and then before you knew it, pass right by your ear to Roma Dunze or whoever you want to talk about for Washington catching the football. If they can make those windows close up a little bit quicker, or heck, if they can even bait Michael Penix into throwing a couple passes he doesn't want to throw and get their paws on the football and tip it up in the air, turnover for Oregon, good things going for the Ducks, like that would be the way that you want to live. But I think for Oregon, like the, the key really is what we talked about. Can you force Washington to nickel and dime their way down the field? Because with offenses like Washington, I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying you typically don't want to do that if you're a quarterback like Michael Penix and you're accustomed to, like I said, launching just darts downfield that are big plays and they're well over the defense's head. If you're not able to get that at a certain point in the game, you start to get greedy. You start to try and press. And when you press, that's when mistakes happen. That's when it would play right into Oregon's hands. Now, if Oregon can't do that, and they have those issues we talked about a second ago where they're not great when the the snap is, or excuse me, they're, they're not great with the pre-snap movement. They're not great during the snap where they have some issues they got to sort out between man coverage or zone coverage, whatever it is. That's when big plays would happen for Washington. And then for Oregon, it's like, okay, tie them up tight, boys. Make sure those, those spikes are all the way dialed in because it's going to be a track meet. I think you'd like to avoid that if you're Oregon. But if you're Washington and you can put pressure on Oregon to match scores, I think that's a good way to go. Now, uh, a key piece within this whole matchup is tackling in space for Oregon is going to be crucial. If you want to force someone to nickel and dime their way down the field, you better be able to rally to the football. If he throws a five-yard pass, got to be a five-yard game. It can't be a five-yard pass and then we struggle to tackle it for Oregon and they get a 15-yard gain out of it. Like, They've got the playmakers in that wide receiver room to do that after the catch. You can't let that be a reality if you're Oregon. That's this game plan, keeping the whole lid on the deep pass game. It sounds nice. It don't work if you don't tackle. So that's the first part of this. Now, Washington in run support against this north-south approach of the Oregon run game is going to be big. Oregon, man, if you turn on the tape, there is, there is no sign of any soft Oregon team that used to exist in Eugene. And I'm not talking about Dan Lanning. I'm not talking about Mario Cristobal. I'm talking about the old days when you would talk about Oregon and say, yeah, well, they score a lot of points, but wait till they play Stanford. Remember Stanford when they used to be a team that was like consistently in that New Year six conversation? I guess at that point in time, it was the BCS conversation. Like, remember that, that Stanford team? Oregon's not that team anymore. Oregon is now the aggressor. If you watch that tape against Colorado, and it's Colorado, mind you, so let's kind of take it with a grain of salt. Oregon was pulling right, pulling left, run power this way, run power that way, move your defensive line four yards downfield. Like, it did not matter. That was how they got down at Oregon, and that's how they've gotten down so far with Dan Lanning running the show. And I think that's going to be the same approach for them this season. I think it's going to be the same approach in this game. And when you're able to get downhill, when you're able to have success doing that, everything else opens up within this offense because what it would force Washington to do is to pack it in in the box. Well, at that point, then, we can throw the bubble. We can get some more numbers on the perimeter. 
we can mess with your safeties. We can take some more deep shots. Like everything for Oregon starts going north-south in that running game. Now for Washington, they have a very quick trigger at the linebacker position. Like the thing that you love and also maybe don't love if you're a Washington fan is the way that your linebackers take swings. Like if, if they see a guard pull or they see their key do a certain thing, like there's no waiting. There's no second guessing there is we are getting to the football right now if we're Washington defensively. And again, you might love that because it could create a fair amount of negative plays for the offense. And it, it does when Washington's successful doing that. The concern you would have there is, like we talked about with other game breakdowns, when you swing, there's a chance you swing and miss if you don't make contact. And if you swing and miss, there's not a lot of second level help behind you because you were the second level. And that safety's got to come down and fail. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he got blocked. Maybe he has something else going on with, with uh, what he has to pay attention to in the pass game. So for, for Washington, that's going to be a very big part of this is connecting when they do trigger. Not having this whole, we got to regroup. We, we, we got to have somebody else fill behind our linebacker because we, we triggered quickly and we were wrong. But if you do it effectively, you force Oregon into some more third and long, some more obvious passing situations, and you're able to mess with Bo Nix a little bit more in that sense with how exotic you want to be on the secondary, with how much you want to show pressure and not bring it. Like That's kind of a thing you got to watch for if you're Washington and uh, how this matchup could shake out. So if, if Oregon is able to win that matchup, we just talked about what happened if Washington wins that matchup, you create problems for Bo Nix. If Oregon wins that matchup, everything else opens up and probably have some big run plays. But like I said, I think it leads to some big pass plays in the secondary there against Washington. So there's, I mean, I, when, we're scripting, when we're scripting these games, we're breaking down these games, I try and do it in bullet points. Like, hey, what are the big matchups? And we got to the last bullet point here, and I was like, man, there's a lot of ways we could go with this. And I wasn't sure which we wanted to trim down. So we're just going to give you our unfiltered thoughts here. I think there's two things that I'm looking at in this game when it comes to deciding factors. Who adjusts the best? Because I think this is a game where you're week seven. You've saved some things just for Oregon. You've saved some things just for Washington. So there's going to be some things that we haven't seen on tape from either team. They're going to show in this game. How do you respond? Probably take a little punch on the chin. Probably wobble a little bit. Is it the knockout blow where you're just like, hey, we're down for the count? That new personnel grouping they showed us, we could not fit it correctly, and we just had issues all day long for either side? Or is it a thing where you're able to adjust, steady the ship, adjust the game plan? Let's go a few more rounds. Other part of this, other question I have, which quarterback meets the moment? This is a game, rivalry game, playoff implications, conference championship implications, where your best player... Your quarterback, whether it's Michael Penix Jr. for Washington or Bo Nix for Oregon, you have to be at your best. There is no way around it. It's the kind of game where you're the differentiator. And being the differentiator can be summed up in a couple of things. Be the catalyst for the offense. Be the catalyst for your team as a whole. Be the, be, be the, the thermostat. Set the temperature competitively for your team. Set the standard. Hey, Bo Nix, he's running over linebackers. Hey, Michael Penix, he's running for 30-yard gains and he's throwing touchdowns. Like he, he, Everybody's rising to his level that he's setting for this team. You're the playmaker that is leading everything from an offensive standpoint, but also just setting the tone, like we were talking about. The other part of this is you keep from making that big mistake. We're not talking about Bo Nix throwing the game, losing interception. We're not talking about Michael Penix Jr. having a, a strip sack to lose the game because he was... Too slow to get rid of the football. Which quarterback meets the moment? 
I think whoever has, it may not be a stat line thing. I think it'll be a timely thing. It might be that final drive for either quarterback making the big play to win the game. But that's something that I think will ultimately determine the game. So when it comes down to our pick in this game, I think it'll be a battle in the perimeter for both teams for the obvious reasons that Washington wants to throw the ball around the yard. Oregon wants to do a lot of movement and get the ball out to the perimeter offensively, and it'll be a battle for both sides defensively on that side. I think Oregon is the more physical team. And we've said that for a minute here. We've taken some heat not being on the Washington train right away. Now, if Washington wins this game, sign us up. Get us a seat on that train. But I think Oregon being the more physical team will control the game. will open more things up for Bo Nix. I don't know if we see Oregon slow it down, but I just think that the way they play in the line of scrimmage will be the difference maker. And I think Oregon's edge that they've had all season long will show itself in this game. I like Washington, but I just have concerns about their defense. So with that being said, we like Oregon to win this football game. Close. Might come down to a last-second field goal. Final score for us in Seattle. The Ducks get it done 34-31. to And the winner of that football game establishes themselves without question as, I think, the big dog in the Pac-12. Again, no pun intended when we're talking about the big dogs. Let's keep on rolling here talking about the Pac-12, man. Talking about a team that has a chance to be the big dog, and I think a lot of people have, I don't know if sold their stock is the right word, but a lot of people, I think, have real concerns about USC's defense, and it's fair. We got the battle for the jeweled shillelagh. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, it's USC going to South Bend, Indiana to play Notre Dame. Notre Dame favored by two and a half points, 7.30 Eastern on NBC. Nick Brake, a big NBC guy. All right, the broadcast may uh, may demand some attention from Nick Brake just by pure nature of how they put it on. Regardless, USC, if you're going to be a college football playoff team, this is the game where you turn it on. We've been critical of USC's defense, not as critical as everybody else, just to be clear. But the, the main critique we've had hasn't been the lack of tackling, hasn't been the issues with what they've done schematically. It's been the lack of progress. Because this was the game that you were supposed to build to. So for USC, maybe they've done some things behind closed doors. Maybe this is the game where it's like, hey, we just needed a logo to go chase. We just needed to see that golden dome in front of us before we kind of got our juices flowing. Now, if that's the case, there's probably more problems in Los Angeles in terms of what we're doing competitively. Regardless, though, if that's what you need, if this is kind of the start to it all for USC, great. I'm good with it so far. Unblemished record. This is the game, though, that you got to turn it on. For Notre Dame, this is the identity kind of game. Because right now, they got two losses. You don't play for a conference title if you're Notre Dame. The way that is, you play for college football playoff berths. And right now, using history as our teacher, it's going to be... Very, very difficult for Notre Dame to still somehow make the college football playoff. So remember now, Marcus Freeman just became the head coach. It's his second year, second year of the Marcus Freeman era. What does this team do when they're down on the mat? Lost to Ohio State on the final play, more or less. Lost to Louisville just in domination factor, or domination fashion, rather. Do you stay down? Say, oh, what was us? Sam Hartman was just here to look good for NFL scouts anyway? Or do you get up off the mat and say, you know what, it's a rivalry game. We're back at the crib. We got a lot to prove. We're going to fight with everything we got to get to a New Year's Six Bowl and make it at least a conversation on Selection Sunday if we make a statement the rest of the way. Like, what do we get from them? I'm very, very curious to see. 
The USC defensive line against the bully ball of Notre Dame is something I cannot wait to see. Because if you're USC, this is the game you went to the portal for. This is the game you went and got Bear Alexander and went and got Anthony Lucas and went and got Jack Sullivan. Like These are the cast of characters now. This is the way that you've built this defensive line to stand up to the teams like Notre Dame who are going to run the football at you. Notre Dame's a downhill attack. It is what it is. Audric Estime lifts weights. I'm sure he squats a lot of weights. And he's going to use all of that lower body strength getting downhill and imposing his will against USC's defensive line. And for USC, I don't think it's even a matter of being dominant. I'm talking about can you get a push? Can you get a push? Can you have a stalemate? on third and one and allow your linebackers to fly in there and make a tackle. Now, that's another big part of this. Can you tackle if you do get a push? Whole other conversation in itself. But if USC can hold up, you give yourself a chance. You give yourself a chance. Because otherwise, if you can't, like it's going to be Utah from that Pac-12 title game in round two. It's going to be just, it's going to be domination. That's what it'll be. Because Notre Dame, they have that potential to do it. And they have the, I think, offensive line to do it. But for USC, if the defensive line can get a push, they'll give themselves a chance to get some stops. And that's, that's not you know a great headline. USC gets a couple of stops against Notre Dame. But with what USC has offensively, it might just take a couple stops. It might just take three to four stops during the game and allow this offense to get a little bit ahead of Notre Dame and put some pressure on them. Now, the key thing with Notre Dame, if they're able to get some success running the football, guess what they get to do? not just score points, that's obviously a big part of it. If they get to run the football, they get to hold on to the football. And if Sam Hartman and that Notre Dame offense is out there, that means Caleb Williams is having to watch this game. That's the world you want to live in. You want to limit possessions for Caleb Williams. So very, very big factor there for Notre Dame and for USC, how they're playing on the line of scrimmage. Now, how does Notre Dame do in space defensively against USC and all the offensive weapons they have. Because, I mean, it is just an embarrassment of riches for USC when it comes to all their skill players. And I think that you look at the Ohio State game as maybe the best level of comp that Notre Dame's had to play against when it comes to skill players. But I think the way that USC runs their offense and how wide open they go is what could really give Notre Dame issues and brings like a, a new level of difficulty. USC wants to spread you out on defense. They want to isolate matchups. And then they want to attack those matchups. So you might have three out of the four, but if we have the one we like at USC, like we're taking that, and we're probably winning it by nature of how successful they've been to this point in the season. So the task for Notre Dame is similar to what we said about the task against Ohio State. Can you contain, like keep that, that big play from happening? Can you funnel it back to the middle of the field? Can you funnel it back to where the rest of your defense is when they throw those, let's say, uh, five-yard hitch or the out route or whatever it is can you can you hold that side of the thing down can you we're, we're not bringing very articulate there can you funnel the the play back to the tacklers and can you rally to the football that's what it is football 101 hold on for dear life allow your teammates to get in on the action and we got to run to the football pursuit this week will be crucial for notre dame defensively now the key thing within that now a subplot within that is the linebackers for notre dame they have to, I think, read and react very quickly. Like, we, we got to be able to be on our P's and Q's and read our keys very quickly if we're Notre Dame at the linebacker position. But the other part of this is you can't just sit back and let Caleb Williams pick you apart. 
Like, if, if we play passive against USC defensively for Notre Dame, it's going to be a long day. Because the last thing you want is to allow him to sit back there, sit, sit, pat the football, pat the football, and while you're doing that, somebody gets open downfield. Brennan Rice is open downfield. Dorian Singer's open downfield. Like, the longer that these plays go, I think the more it favors Caleb Williams and the more it favors USC. Whenever he's able to ad-lib, you might have had the right play drawn up if you're Notre Dame defensively, but whenever that new play starts, then you're in Caleb Williams' world, and that's not a world you want to live in if you're Notre Dame. So the potential differentiator here is who has more in the tank emotionally, like competitive stamina-wise. Who has more in the tank? Because we talked a lot about Notre Dame and the spot they were in last week against Louisville and the fact they had to play Ohio State and they lost that game on the last play, then they play Duke, they win that play on the last play, or they win that game on the last play, and you lose to Louisville and just, I mean, just get thrashed. It is what it is. Like, we're not going to sugarcoat it. I promise you the good people in South Bend, they're not sugarcoating it. Just got absolutely done up. How do you respond to that? Where's, where's the emotional fuel tank at? Because USC, I mean, it's kind of been a little bit more sneaky. It's been a little bit more sneaky than you would like it to be if you're USC, but you beat Colorado by one score. Had to recover an onside kick to win that football game. You beat Arizona, yeah, but it took three overtimes. I promise you, those, both those games are draining for a football team. Who has more in the tank? Because I think for both sides, it's going to take a version of their best football to win this game. I don't think this is a game where if you're Notre Dame or USC, you can sleepwalk for that first quarter and then turn it on in the second and third quarter and really get it going. We saw what USC is if they don't hit the ground running offensively. Had to play catch-up against Arizona. You can't play catch-up against Notre Dame. Same thing for Notre Dame. If you don't score with USC, this thing at Notre Dame, it's a really good offense. I think it's a potent offense. It's built to keep pace. It's not built to chase. If Notre Dame goes down two scores, it could be a very difficult post game for Marcus Freeman so when it comes to this game man I sigh because I don't want to I don't want to get too negative here but like we we've stood by the USC defense for the entirety of the season to this point and when we predict games like this some of it is projection some of it is guessing or assuming or trying to track a trend and seeing what a team's going to do in a certain game when it comes to this game though if USC were to play a solid level of defense, it would be something new. It would be something that we haven't seen to this point in the year. I think this is a bounce-back week for Notre Dame. And I think USC has a chance to score a lot of points. But we've also seen the blueprint now from a couple of teams with how they're able to, again, not neutralize Caleb Williams in this offense, but in some way, shape, or form, hold it down for a little bit and be able to have some success defensively against them. That blueprint's out there now, I think. And it's better personnel than USC has seen to this point in the year defensively. I think that they will execute. And I think Notre Dame wins this football game. I think just the physicality is too much for USC. If they show up in this game, great. If they show up in this game and do something we haven't seen to this point in the year, great. But we're going to go ahead and bet on in this shape in terms of picking a game what we've seen to this point and that is USC having trouble physically against teams that want to run the football and Notre Dame being able to run the football for the most part the majority of the time outside of that Louisville game so we got Notre Dame winning this football game final score 27 to 24 in South Bend if it's in the Coliseum maybe we feel differently but the Jules Shillelagh 
It's going back to South Bend, Indiana. That'll be a lot of fun to, to break down and to talk about the Sunday after. And that's another reason to subscribe, man. If, if you haven't yet subscribed to this channel, we don't do a live show on Sunday morning because a lot of y'all are at church doing whatever. We get right to it, man. We, we break down the games and we give you one-off videos starting at like, gosh, if you're, if you're on the East Coast, I guess it's 9 a.m., but I mean, my, maybe even a little before that, quite frankly. We get in here early and we get after it and we get you all the content ASAP. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of that as well. Quick ad read for you. Going to tell you about Roback and what they got going on. But like I said, make sure you get in the chat right now. Get after after this ad read. We will go right to the live chat and go right to Nick Break and break it all down. So when it comes to Roback, they are one, bringing you the hard count. And you guys all know that I love Roback. I wear it all the time. If you, if you tune into my Instagram stories on Fridays when we're doing q and I'm always rocking some Roback. And I wear them all the time for a reason because they have the best polos on the market. They got the best dry fit shirts on the market. I say dry fit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. They have the best moisture wicking shirts on the market. Uh, if you need a polo to last you the entire day on a hot game day, Roback is your answer. Now, they also got some performance crew necks that are going to take care of you and also you know keep you comfortable and warm as we're getting into crispy season some great hoodies as well uh, the moisture wicking technology and four-way stretch makes it easy to move in while keeping you feeling fresh roback's everyday shorts are the perfect pairing as well they're comfortable have an elastic waistband and great fabric that is made to stretch now roback has also been proudly leading the charge in nil having signed partnerships with college stars cage Cade klubnik kyle mccord Nick Singleton, Jalen Moto, and Audric Estime. They've also teamed up with legendary Coach O. And there's a lot of really good content on their socials, so go check out Roback. That's phenomenal stuff they're doing with Coach O. Use the code JD on Roback.com for a generous 20% off for all new customers. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. That's 20% off all performance polos, shorts, performance crewnecks, and more with code JD. So just in time now for this back half of the college football season, make sure you check them out at roback.com. All right, bringing on now the keeper of the queue, producer of the hard count, heavy lifter extraordinaire, Nick Brake. Nick, how we doing, big dog? What's up, man? Hey, uh, some questions about uh, Oregon and Washington. Lance wants to know. He's got a Washington helmet in his uh, bio. Okay. Why did you change your answer from Washington and Oregon like four times? Jay, I don't think you did, but... Yeah, we didn't. Um, You know, there there may have been... So here's the thing, too. We have the TikToks on the On3 TikTok page. And I'll be real with y'all. Like, it's the end of the show now. Like, it's probably just y'all tuned in. Not a fan of those. Not a fan of doing the, the TikTok predictions. Why? Because everything changes so much week to week. And it leaves us totally just exposed for whatever happens during the season. It's like, well, you picked Florida State to lose to Clemson. You picked this. And it's like... Yeah, in July, <laughs> in July, before we actually knew anything about either team. So I'm not a fan of it. It's an exercise we do on here because I think a lot of y'all are interested in seeing what we think of those teams from a win-loss perspective. I would much rather do a macro conversation, and we do some of those during the, the offseason as well in terms of like best case, worst case, probably where they'll end up at. Not a fan of the TikTok schedule predictions. But even so, I understand y'all want to see it, so we do it. But uh, if, if you're holding us to our prediction in July and we're in October right now, like I, I don't got any answers for you. It kind of is what it is. We feel the way we feel about Oregon right now, and we think they win that football game. If we're wrong, we're wrong, but that's what we're, that's, we're, uh, 
that's our final answer, if you will, what we're sticking to uh, when it comes to the week of the game. JD, I'm just going to say, uh, sometimes I agree with you and that I think Washington's going to win. I'm okay, there it is. going to say it. Um, you're, you're on record, baby. I love it. I'm on record. I love uh, it. But uh, next question coming from Big G. If JD, okay, ask JD, if Oklahoma and Texas both went out and meet in the Big 12 championship and Texas wins, what happens to each of their playoff chances? So to answer that question, Texas is in. If Texas avenges their one loss against Oklahoma, pair that with a top five win at Alabama, pair that with, a, it's probably a top five win against Oklahoma if they've won out and got to the Big 12 title game. Now here's the real question. What happens to Oklahoma? Does Oklahoma also get into the champion or get into the college football playoff because they lost in the Big 12 championship, but that's their only loss to at that point in time, probably a top 10 Texas football team. I that's one that I really would be interested to see how they handle it because we've seen it happen a couple times where Georgia gets the nod or Alabama gets the nod or whatever because they were undefeated in the SEC title game and then they lost that one they still got in I'm curious to see I think that would be fascinating and I'm sure there would be a lot of comparisons to what the SEC did in that whole situation but uh, I think you got to put Oklahoma in I think if Oklahoma wins out and drops one game in the Big 12 title to Texas, much like TCU did last year, I think they get into the dance. Now, you probably need a couple of things to fall your way across the rest of the college football landscape. Like, I'm not so sure we won't be sitting here still with a one-loss Big 10 team that's not playing for the Big 10 title. And I don't know what you do with them. I think that would be a tough head-to-head to, to have a conversation about. But all that's to say... I would, I would lean towards Oklahoma getting in with a one loss to Texas in the Big 12 title game. But Texas is in if that happens. J.D., um, I, I don't know about that. Let's say that Penn State loses to both Michigan and Ohio State, Ohio State or Michigan lose. Wouldn't you want to take a one loss to uh, Ohio State or Michigan instead of a one loss Texas or o- and Oklahoma. So, so you're saying one loss Big Ten team, whether it's Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State. Let's say, let's say it's let's just keep it simple and say it's like last year. Ohio yeah. State loses to Michigan. Michigan goes undefeated, win the Big Ten. Ohio State sitting there and saying, hey, our one loss was to Michigan, and we beat a Penn State team that was top ten, probably. And Notre Dame too. And you beat Notre Dame. Yeah, it's a real conversation. Like that's that's the thing where I start to worry about Oklahoma if they able if they're able to get in there. But, like, I'd be very curious to see how the committee treats it where you lose to the team that you already beat earlier in the season. Like, does that factor in? Because Texas, for a lot of people, was top three in the country when when Oklahoma beat them. Like, does that factor in? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how that all works. I think probably at that point, Nick, like the eye test probably becomes a thing. Yep. And uh, Strength of schedule. Strength of schedule. And I will say this, too. I think think what you just said is on the money. Like, if it's going to be a one-loss Big Ten team mm-hmm. that makes it in that's not a conference champion, I think it probably has to be Ohio State because of that win over Notre Dame. Yes. Like, and if it's Penn State, I don't, I don't know what else to have on the yeah. schedule that gives me confidence. Or Michigan, like, no knock on Michigan, but they haven't played anybody that makes me think, like, okay, if you're a one-loss yeah. non, you know, like, I, that, that's, that's curious to me. Um, now, I guess they would have the win over a 
other Big Ten team, whether it's Michigan or Ohio or, or, or Penn State, State yeah. that would be a top 10 win. So it's it's a whole conversation, but I think Ohio State's probably the best chance for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Nick, we're, we're probably going to talk about this in a couple of weeks here as yeah. they play in a couple of weeks. I think Penn State Penn State might might take care of business against Ohio State. Man, if they do that, that will make the committee's job a little easier in terms of Ohio State, I would say, because uh, then that Michigan game is for their survival. But yeah. it makes Penn State kind of – a factor Penn you know state? i think wouldn't you say the committee just would have preferred notre dame to have beaten ohio state get them out of there knowing that yeah yeah probably so. so probably so yeah and in, in, in a perfect world the committee would probably rather deal with that yeah and then be rooting for louisville yeah the committee I, we don't envy the committee's job but i promise you that they uh yeah they were probably rooting for for some chaos there to happen mm-hmm. uh to make their job a little bit easier but yep why we love it so last year we're going to be thinking about this in uh in october november oh man at this point we're talking about like okay so like think about it this is off track at this point in 2024 like is the college football playoff race kind of set right like and i know it's not totally set because a lot could still happen but like at this point what we can probably pencil in georgia probably pencil in michigan probably pencil in one of penn state or ohio state probably pencil in I don't know if you pencil in Bama just yet, but they're probably like a, a fringe team. Like at this point, like the focus would shift to those other teams, right? Like can LSU find a way in? Can Ole Miss keep it going and find a way in? Like, I don't know. I think that's a little bit lame. It'll Gee, be fun, but it, I mean, right now from the I, other side, it looks lame. I'm all for it, man. We could argue that some other time, but I, I, I'm excited that it's going to be up to the players and not the people who don't play in the committee. But um, that aside... We, uh, we, we could go back and forth there for could. a while. You're All right. Day. You're right. All another day, another show for another time. Yeah. Um, Nathan, this is a more of a tell JD than an ask JD, but I think Love this it. is an interesting point. I don't think there is a single ACC team that would do well in the playoff. They just don't have the roster makeups to compete, to compete with top-level SEC and Big Ten teams. Uh, JD, your thoughts? I think Florida State actually probably could hold their own i think florida state actually will be a team that we're talking about on selection sunday being in that top four at least being in that top six uh now they got to handle business the rest of the way in the acc and they still got to play duke i believe and miami and miami's not gonna be easy so uh, all that's to say i think florida state just the way they're built i would actually push against that the run game for florida state hasn't really found itself just yet but i think that it's there. Like I think they have some good backs. I think they have some salt pieces on the offensive line. Like I don't think it's a matter of can they. I think it's a matter of will they. And then defensively for, for Florida State, I love what they bring to the table. I think the defensive line could hold up. I think that the uh, second level of that defense could hold up. I think they can match when it comes to the pass game offensively with Keon Coleman. Like I think Florida State actually would be a team that's, that's proven they could be a team that would hold their own in the college football playoff based on what we saw against Clemson and against LSU. So I know that's not Michigan. I know that's not, you know, the Penn States and Ohio States of the world. I see where you're coming from. I'm a little bit slower to sell my stock on Florida State because of what we've seen from them, not just this year. And I, it's it's kind of cheating the system a little bit, Nick, but like it's number one returning production in the country. Like last year's Florida State has a lot of pieces that are on this year's Florida State. And they did a lot of things last year that we're not seeing them do as effectively this year. But I think I think in November we'll feel we'll feel good about where we stand with uh, with Florida State. Okay, uh, JD. Last thing today. Here we it. go. Um, we are going to be talking as soon as I find it. We're going to be talking about Oregon one more time. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're right. This is Mason's question. Let's say they're right. Um, 
on Sunday morning, do we come in here and do we put Oregon in the top four if they're to beat Washington this weekend? I think you do. I think you do. And some of it matters on how it looks, like how far into that top four do we put them. Um, and that's not a knock against anybody in the top four right now. The way that we do our rankings is we, we talk about teams passing teams as opposed to you know, teams taking steps back. Um, at that point in time, I would really feel like if Oregon can go to Washington and beat a top 10 team that has been just throttling everybody with how they've operated offensively, I think Oregon's a top four team at that point in time. Now, we'll see what the committee thinks. We'll see what the other polls think. But for us, Oregon would be a, a top four team. So that's how I feel about it. And I think that would also set a tremendous trajectory for Oregon the rest of the way. And, I mean, talk about a quality win, too, for their resume. Like, mm-hmm. top 10 win on the road. Everybody's watching that one. Like, I think that would be a, uh, a huge feather in the cap. And, Nick, I know, I know you said it, man. We're going to, we're going to 12. I mean, these teams get to play it out right now. Like, this, like college football yeah. is, a, is a 12-week expanded playoff. We get double elimination, and, like, this is a playoff game or at least a version of a playoff game for both teams, depending on how they view the Pac-12. So it'll be fun, man. It'll be fun, but, I mean, I think they'd be a top-four team. Nick, you had Washington. Would you consider Oregon to be a top-four team at that point? Um, if, if Oregon beats Washington, that is? Yes, just because I'm not totally sold on Ohio State. Now, look, I don't watch a ton of college football, as you know. Um, I, uh, I look more statistics and I watch highlights, so I can't really answer this, but I'm looking at resumes. Oh, and I actually watched Ohio State play a couple games this year. They're they're good. They pull things out in the end, but I'm I think Oregon just do it in a in a in a better way. And I think they look like a better team. I'm so, with you, man. Yeah, I'm I'd with put you. them in four. Ohio mm-hmm. State moved down to five. No, we're we're in lockstep there. Ohio State, the eye test is left mm-hmm. a little bit to be desired, but yeah, be, it'll be a good time nonetheless. A uh, lot to learn here this Saturday. Hey, Nick, I appreciate you, brother. Big uh, big kickball game tomorrow. I know we're back on the air tomorrow morning, so we'll talk about it a little bit more then. But we're feeling good. Leg feeling good? Resting up, man. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, baby. Let's go. Nick, appreciate you, brother. We'll see you again tomorrow morning. Yep. That's Nick Brake, keeper of the queue. Heavy lifter extraordinaire. Doing everything you see here, man. There's no show without Nick Brake. Just to make that 100% clear. Nick Brake doesn't do what he does. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. So we're incredibly thankful Consider ourselves lucky to work with NB9. But we appreciate y'all and, and consider ourselves especially lucky to have y'all tuned in. So before you get out of here, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss our next live show. We're live tomorrow morning, okay? So that's Wednesday, October 11th, 11 a.m. Eastern. Make sure you're dialed in. Got a lot we got to talk about. We'll give you some more game predictions. Come back and see us and we'll have a real good time. If you're a podcast person, Shout out to the podcast. Shout out to y'all listening on podcasts. A lot of college students, a lot of high school students listening during their studying or lack thereof. Regardless, it's okay. It's important to study. It's more important to know what's going on in the college football landscape. So we're glad to have y'all part of this. Hey, I'm Jody Pacquiao. We love y'all. We appreciate y'all. We're going to keep this party rolling. We will see y'all next time. Madness is here. 
Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text HOPE NY in New York.